0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Adventures in DevOps. We are doing an international episode today. I guess we usually do, but today it's more international, I think, than usual because we have three countries represented. I'm in Guatemala visiting my in laws this week. I'm joined today by Jillian.
1: Hello.
0: Where are you joining us from?
1: Doha, Qatar. You're back
0: home. This in, week. In, back home in Doha. Yep. well Button.
2: What's going on, everybody?
0: And our guest this week, Alan Helton. Alan, welcome. You're joining us from the great country of Texas, you said.
3: That's right. The one and only.
0: Happy to be here. Awesome. We're great to have you here. We're glad to have you here. <laughs> it's great <laughs> to have you here.
4: Whatever.
1: I'm delighted to have you here. <laughs>
4: And max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com.
0: We're talking today about serverless and how that relates to DevOps. Uh, But before we jump into that, Alan, do you want to give us a brief introduction? Tell us who you are and maybe what you know about serverless and DevOps, and
3: then we'll, we'll jump in. Sure. My name's Alan Helton. I work for a company called Tyler Technologies. Been there for 10 years. I was, I like to say, poached right out of college. I was given a, a full-time position at Tyler about two months before I graduated college. And I'll let you know, those were the hardest two months of my college career, knowing I already had a job <laughs> locked down, just trying to see it through. <laughs> really oh, the
1: fortitude. Uh,
3: yeah, that was. That was fun and rough all at the same time. I've been I've been a developer for the majority of that 10-year uh, time. I uh, started off as a .NET engineer working cool. on thick client apps and kind of progressed from, from an entry level, working my way up to senior engineer, lead engineer. I was a manager for a couple of years, sitting at a, a cloud architect uh, title for, for Tyler Technologies. So... It's actually a relatively new role for me. I'm excited to kind of get in there and, and pave the way and, and set the standards for that. But uh, as far as serverless goes, I've i when I was a manager, I was a manager for the past uh, three years of two uh, cloud-native teams, and we go 100% serverless. So it was dive headfirst into the deep end of, of cloud tech, uh, just discovering and trying to figure out everything from from DevOps to honestly, JavaScript, that was a new one for me, to to serverless architecture in, in the cloud. So I've been uh, working kind of as a hybrid role, a cloud architect and uh, development manager over, over the past couple of years, while we learn about everything we can
0: serverless. So the thing that surprised me about that is not probably what you might expect. But the thing that surprised me is you said JavaScript is new to you. How did you get that far down in your
3: career without JavaScript? Honestly, it was just working in .NET thick client apps. There's not a lot of space for for JavaScript there. You know, the front end was all uh, WPF kind of thing. It wasn't written, writing in scripting languages. One right. of the biggest things that we did when we started serverless was, well, let's use .NET because that's what we know. Of course, yeah. And at the time, it wasn't very good. The AWS support for .NET. It, you'd have like 30-second cold starts on Lambda functions. We quickly abandoned that. <laughs> so we thought, oh, Python's cool. Let's try Python. So we tried that. Didn't like it a whole lot. And then we're like, let's, let's try uh, JavaScript. And we okay. went over there and we're like, well, I mean, the front end's kind of already written in that anyway. So let's do it for the back end, too. And that's how we landed there. So I guess I Great should have taken
0: a, a different career path because I really don't like JavaScript. Maybe I should have been a .NET guy so I could avoid that. You should have been a <laughs> Perl CGI guy is what you should have done. I was. I was for 12 years.
1: Yeah, I was too. I know. I know. Y'all were at some point. <laughs> so Alan, Why didn't you I
0: do Perl like for serverless? <laughs>
1: I can still range to three yeah, well, the period.
0: Everything's not temporal. Anyway, <crazy. laughs>
1: everything is at some point. You know, so Alan, I think I'm gonna uh, play the role of the skeptic on this show, and that I don't, I don't get serverless. Like, I just, I haven't even looked at it much because I'm like, I know there's a server there. I think you're trying to keep me away from it, and I don't know how I feel about that. So, like, I need this explained to me in kind of, I don't know, you know, anxiety-reducing terms. What is the serverless? What is it doing? What is it keeping away from me? What if I need access? Because I know that there's a server in there somewhere, right? I don't believe this, but I'll, I'll let you take it. Sure. Through. No,
3: you're. <laughs> You're right, there are servers in, in serverless, but the whole gist of it is as a, as a developer, as someone that's writing in serverless and using serverless tech, you don't care. It's abstracted away from you by the, by the cloud vendor. Uh, I don't have to go in and worry about maintaining operating systems, uh, installing packages, uh, going and configuring load balancers or, or anything like that. I just don't care. That's that's what we're paying AWS to do, manage that for me. So me and my team of developers can focus 100 percent of our time on business problems. You know, when we're when we're triaging an issue, we're triaging business problems in the code, not environment issues.
1: So y'all are trying to code me out of a job again. This is like the third career path that <laughs> I've been coded out of. My life. I had a really, really big one for the whole thing was just installing bioinformatic software. That was it. That was my whole job. And then Conda coded me out of that job, and now I guess I guess, serverless is, is it going to code me out of the DevOps job? What do we think, guys?
3: Well, I mean, thats <laughs> it's still a thing. Somebody works for the cloud vendors doing this. You can still go there. <laughs> <laughs> you like AWS, Billy. Anybody can just go work for them.
1: I want them to funnel money to me. It's the way. It's the way that I want for that relationship
2: to work. See what happened there. You said the word "work," Jonathan, and she turned it into the word "funnel." <laughs> I think there's a lesson to be learned there. Probably so. So <laughs> you know, the,
1: the, the money should be flowing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so, what does your DevOps workflow look like in a service? And you said you guys are 100% serverless, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. What's your DevOps workflow or DevOps environment look like in that type of situation?
3: So we we run a, a CICD pipeline where everything that we're deploying into the cloud is written in infrastructure as code, which is really where that DevOps kind of piece comes in. Uh, a serverless engineer is just as much a DevOps engineer as dedicated DevOps engineers are because they're the ones that are actually controlling the infrastructure that's getting pushed out. To the cloud, and I see Jillian smiling, trying to hold back. Maybe I'm a little <laughs> overstepping my bound on that one a little bit. But there's, yeah, there's, probably. let me so let me actually pull that pull that back. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of DevOps crossover with serverless engineers. You know, you're not going in and maintaining the the servers like we said, and installing updates, configuring load balancers, but you are saying this is what I want as my infrastructure up in the cloud. So, so that's kind of how that's that's the gist of what we're running. We're We are, as part of the development process, we're defining the infrastructure and saying this part of the infrastructure runs this code. This is how you uh, target it. This is how it links to this other piece. uh, Go. And and it goes out to the cloud. And, you know, with the CI/CD mentality, we're pushing lots of tiny changes every day going up there, you know, running automated tests, get proactive monitoring in there.
2: Yeah, I think I see where you're going there. And that's kind of one of been kind of. It's been one of my goals with every team I've worked with is to push as much of the environment back onto the development team as possible, or not really push it onto them, but give them the control of what it looks like because they know better than I do. You know, how much memory does it need? What's your, what's your auto scaling threshold? All of that kind of stuff. They have that knowledge. And so I try to build tools that allow them to just maintain that themselves, which ultimately turns into infrastructure as code.
1: Yeah, so this is interesting. What happens, um, so you're saying most of your kind of job is triaging business problems. So can you kind of take us through the pipeline from problem comes in to kind of what that pipeline looks like until the code is actually developed that fixes, I suppose, fixes that problem or mitigates it in some way?
3: Definitely. So let's say uh, a client reports an issue. We have, you know, something that's not doing what it's supposed to do. Typically how I, how we do it is try to reproduce first. You know, that, that's, that's generally triage step number one. Can I reproduce it? And by doing that, what we do is, is we get access to, to what API is causing a problem. The, the development that we do, uh, with the products that we work on is, is API first. So everything starts with the API. It's not necessarily driven by the by the user interface, but you know we have dedicated focus on what that API looks like. So we have really strongly defined ins and outs around around our APIs and our endpoints. So we identify which one is it. And the beautiful thing about serverless is that once you know what API or what endpoint is causing problems, you have one spot to look. The beauty of it is that one endpoint equals one. Uh, in AWS's case, Lambda function. In a Lambda function is, at least it should, be single responsibility. It does one thing and one thing only. And that provides a, a super easy way to go in and triage. If I know what, uh, what endpoint, I can go to the Lambda function immediately and troubleshoot a business logic problem in, let's say, 50 lines of code because that's all that's confined in that, in that area I'm not sharing a bunch of code in a controller or anything it's it's really one tiny silo that i'm looking at obviously gets a little bit more difficult once you start throwing in things like uh, choreography and async development processes Uh, but they're all you know aws and and all the cloud vendors are super aware of how difficult that is and they make it pretty easy by tossing uh, trace ids in your choreography so if it goes from a lambda function and gets Broadcast it out uh, with like an SNS topic. You can put in a trace to say, "Well, where's it going? Who's picking it up?"
1: What's choreography? And
3: just kind of, what's choreography? Great question. So choreography is well, you know, if you think about it from the from the dance meaning of the word, it's I'm going to do this, and then and then I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do this move over here with with programming choreography. The other there's two main types of workflows, I guess. There's choreography and there's orchestration. Let me start with the easier one. Orchestration is very procedural. It's, I know when I'm looking at it, I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this, then I'm going to do this. this. But with choreography and event-driven architectures, it's, I'm gonna do this, and I'm gonna tell people that I'm done. And the people that care that I'm done are gonna pick it up and do something else with it. And then when that's done, I'm gonna say that I'm done, And whoever cares picks that up. So you don't really get a kind of one-shot, what's the flow? It's all with publishers and subscribers who care about one thing. And it's when is this event being fired?
1: Cool. Yeah, that kind of leads into sort of the next thing that I was thinking about, which is, I mean, either you have a big kind of monolithic framework that has a bunch of modules and a bunch of functions, or you have a bunch of these individual functions, but sort of naively not really knowing a whole lot about circularity. it kind of seems like it would be more difficult to keep track of A bunch of little things than one big thing. So how do you how do you keep is that how you keep track of things is through this orchestration and through the trace IDs and and that's how you do it? Are there specific frameworks out there to help you deal with serverless? Like what what does that look like from kind of a a top level view?
3: Well, uh, would you mind explaining your question a little bit more? Because I could answer that a couple different ways, but I want to make sure I'm answering it the right way.
1: Really just being, so let's say I have an application and that application is calling many, many functions. So today I was working on an application, right, that has like a front end and then the front end calls a bunch of different little APIs, right? And they're, I suppose they could all be traced back to the front end that is a particular data set. And if I had presumably thousands of those, how do I keep track of, Like, okay, I have a problem somewhere. Where is the problem? Which serverless function does it point to? Do you group things by application type? Do you do you group them by business type? Do they have tags? Like I really have no idea here. So I'm going into this going into this very blind and maybe asking some stupid questions. No,
3: that's not a dumb question at all because when I first started down this down this boat, people asked me the same question. They they thought, well that's that's not a smart way to build big enterprise applications because what happens when you get hundreds or thousands of Lambda functions. How do you how do you manage that? Really my my immediate response is how would you do it with, with the standard monolithic app? It's still the same amount of code, but it's really not that bad. <laughs> it's it goes to planning and microservices in, in bounded contexts. So the way that we the way that we tend to run things is you have uh, domain microservices where you have a set of related functions that do things with a specific entity or or type of type of entity so everything that has to do with this i'll use a i'll use an industry example so one of the applications that i work on is with warrants like arrest warrants and, and search warrants so everything that has to do with a warrant is put in a warrant microservice where we have all of our, let's say 40 or 50 different functions that do CRUD operations or procedural things live there in that microservice. And a microservice for us, really you could just say is, is a repository, a repo in, in GitHub where it, it's separated out and everything that has to do with this lives here. If I want to look at something else, I will go and switch repositories a different one. Really, it's a governance thing, you know, because you could easily slip. You know, that's a, that's a slippery slope. If you start crossing bounding contexts, or just want to put everything in one. Does that answer your question, Jillian? Maybe some. I some?
1: think so. It's becoming clearer. No. <laughs> it's but a one of the darker.
3: misconceptions, <laughs> one of the misconceptions that I think a lot of people have with serverless development is I'm not in the AWS console all day, every day. That's not my job. My job is to write code and I use an IDE on my machine to write that code just like any other application. As far as like building apps serverless versus building the thick client applications that I used to work on, it's essentially the same developer experience. I just have a little bit different responsibilities. I'm pulling code down from a repository, making changes, and checking that code in, and part of the build pipeline goes and puts it into the cloud. So I'm not ever really looking at lists in the AWS console of a thousand different Lambda functions trying to figure out, okay, what am I trying to change? What am I trying to find? I'm just digging through code like like any other app. That
0: segues into some of my questions, which is about the developer experience. When you're working with serverless code, are you able to do local unit testing, for example? Are do you set up a local environment to, to do testing? Just may, Maybe walk me through a typical... Feature or bug fix that you would do on a serverless function, and how does that compare to a monolithic
3: application as you were talking about earlier? Yeah. So another thing, if, if you're looking to get started with serverless, don't fall into this pitfall I'm about to talk talk about. Don't try to bring the cloud to your workstation. Bring your workstation to the cloud. You know, traditionally, you know, we're we're very used to walking through debugging sessions, right? We're executing the code locally. We put a breakpoint in the code. And we hit F10, or F11, boom, 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 boom. Walk line by line with with the cloud stuff, and, and specifically with with serverless. It's not really like that. AWS has made some significant efforts to make it as easy as possible to take your local development environment and push it into the cloud. We use what's called the the SAM CLI, which is an acronym for Serverless Application Manager. I believe don't work for AWS, so I'm allowed to not know what that stands for. <laughs> um, and what it does is it has this new feature that was released, I think, at the end of last year called a SAM sync. And what it does is it syncs up with your AWS account. So every time you hit save, it deploys your changes into the cloud. And you can run your local your local unit tests against your AWS environment that you're using for dev. And it will tail logs and bring them back down to your console. So it's not really running local at all. It's running in the cloud, but you can see what it's doing local.
0: So, so, you're gonna to, so you're not going
3: to be able.
0: So you're not going to be able to do that sitting on an airplane with no Wi-Fi access. But for almost any of the scenario, you're you're going to be built. That fair?
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are you can develop <laughs> local if you want. Yeah. Uh, it involves uh, you know setting up some some Docker configuration, and it does actually support that. But that's not the recommended. One. Fair enough. Good. So if you are on a plane for however many hours, I don't know how long your flight was to to Guatemala, but um, you you can, you can do it. It's, It's not like you don't have
2: that choice. Yeah, good. So correct me if I'm wrong here, but isn't one of the key ways to be successful with serverless is to make, you know, you mentioned making sure that your Lambda functions are really small and really tight. And then the output of those functions, like it receives some data input and then it either does something and returns that or does something and puts it out on a queue for something else to pick up, right? So it's very limited in scope.
3: Yep, yep, you're just building a bunch of little blocks and trying to to chain them together. AWS has well over 200 different services that you can use. Not all of them are serverless, but they all communicate really well uh, with each other, and they all have very specific use cases and purposes. You know, a lot of times you have to take into consideration what's the scale, at which one of my API endpoints is going to run. Like, for for example, not me, but I, I have spoken with some companies that have just otherworldly amount of scale called hyperscale, where it's 10,000 to 100,000 requests a second, uh, you know, millions of requests a second. It's just unbelievable. And what they do is they just, they don't run synchronous responses there, basically, if, if you have your, your API endpoint. And what it does is it just pushes that into a queue and works off of that queue. In AWS, that's the SQS service, Simple Queue service. And it has a Lambda function that just picks off that queue whenever something's available. And it just processes that. And you know, based on what you've designed in your uh, infrastructure, it will notify the caller in, in whatever way, be it a WebSocket or an email or, or a text message. When that operation is done, it's it's really cool. There, there's a whole lot of stuff that you can do with to solve a variety of different problems. That's one of the things. One of the things that I really like about serverless when it comes to DevOps specifically is I don't really have to worry about scaling. It does it for you. That, that's one of the benefits of using a, a cloud vendor is that Lambda functions scale automatically based on based on the load. Uh, you can have up to a thousand lambda functions running concurrently uh, in there, and it could be the same. It could be the same lambda function. You could have a thousand of these things processing the same type of request going at, at all times, and that's just that's even a soft limit. Like you can up the scale and the throughput very easily uh, to do stuff like that. And it's what's nice about that. Again, to kind of track back to what I was saying earlier, is the developers don't have to care about things that we've traditionally cared about before. It's it's really less focused on the business problem.
0: Certain things are more complicated or or at least different when you're doing serverless though, right? I mean if you need to talk to a database, you have to integrate with the database service, our RDS or something like that. I mean, am, I, am I correct?
1: Because yeah, I mean,
0: if you need to do caching or, or anything with state, I guess, really is kind of what I'm getting at. Anything with state, you can't rely on a global variable in your function maintaining that state for you. That's true.
3: That, that is totally true. Serverless is stateless. And, and you have to, you, obviously, you take that into consideration when you're designing your application. You know, so if I'm trying to maintain a state like, like your example, Jonathan, uh, if I was designing some random thing to do what you just said, first thing I would do in, in some of these functions is read and write from the database. It, it lets, let's get the state. We're not persisting it in the server, but we're persisting it in the database instead, and we're fetching it. It's really not hard to, to go and do stuff like that. Uh, there's SDKs. So it ends up being like two lines, two lines of code, say, all right, use the, hit this table, give me this object and, you know, c- carry on.
0: How does that affect a, a typical pattern for a, a microservice, for example, is you connect to the database, you open a database connection pool and it sits there for the entire lifetime of your application and you just reuse your connections as you need to. With serverless, do we have something similar, or are you reconnecting the database on every function call? Because uh, that sounds inefficient, but I'm, I'm sure that they thought of this. What, what's the solution?
3: I don't have a great answer for you, but I have a great reason why. I don't have to know about that. That's okay. <laughs> Uh, it's get, like we use uh, DynamoDB. We use a NoSQL database for for everything that we write, and it it scales up to hundreds of thousands of of connections a, a second. It might even be more than that. Where I don't have to care care about connection pools and, and persisting connections or or anything like that because that's what the that's what the cloud providers offering to me.
2: Right, I think I can, I can provide a little. bit. I can provide a little bit of insight there because what will happen is a Lambda function, once it's invoked, it'll stay up and running. So if it when it's invoked, if it opens up a DB connection and then does its thing, it'll sit there idle for a certain amount of time. And if another request comes in, then it'll process that request too. And so a a Lambda function may have an extended life as long as you keep asking it to do things, but then once it goes idle for a certain amount of time, that's whenever it would close down, shut down the database connection, and then the next request would launch a new Lambda function with a new DB connection.
3: You sound like an yep, expert. And world. there's actually a lot of tricks. There's, there's a lot of tricks that you can use kind of along those lines to increase performance. Uh, like JavaScript offers a, a unique environment variable that you can provide to Lambda functions that say persist connections. To do exactly what you just said, will, uh-huh. and uh, you can. There are there are uh, things that you can do to also take advantage of these lambda functions potentially living for n number of executions where n is greater than one. Example: If I'm loading secrets, same secret, right? But it's it's stored securely. i uh, loading a secret to go use on some API I'm integrating with. What you can do is you can store those secrets after you load them for the first time. In a global variable that's scoped to that lambda function that will store store those for the life of the of the lambda function's uptime, which you know could be ten minutes, could be an hour based on the load, could be could be whatever. But uh, little nice tricks and and nuances that you learn when you're in there, you know, all the time trying to figure out how how do we make this faster? Because one of the things that we haven't talked about with with serverless is that it's it's pay for uptime. Dun dun dun. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, right. Which means that if you're, if you're writing code that's not performant, you're just throwing dollars away. You pay, uh, you know, fractions and fractions and fractions of a penny for an invocation of a Lambda function. You also pay for how much memory that Lambda function is used and what its uptime was when it's actually running your code. You're not going to pay for it sitting idle while it's waiting for another connection, but while it's running your code, you pay for that. And you get billed down to the millisecond. So if I have if I have a really slow function that takes, let's say, five seconds, that's that's a pretty slow function, but it doesn't need to, right? Because I maybe could have broken out of a loop or uh, called something a little bit easier, kicked an async process off instead of waiting for it. You know, if I get that down to 200 milliseconds, that's, that ends up saving you a lot of, a lot of money. It's a different mindset, trying to optimize for performance, not just because of the user experience, but because
1: of cost.